It's fortunate and blessed to be here. I really am. <clears throat> There's only one negative, and it's a fairly critical negative. The weather here, there's something wrong with it because last week this coat fitted me and it shrunk since I've been here. Uh, the food around here is something else. I mean, I've been in some of the best eating places I think that's possible. Uh, I vowed, I made a vow 45 years ago I'd never buy a bigger suit size. But every once in a while they get very tight and right now it's as tight as it's ever been. But anyway, thanks for the good food. I really, Alethea, boy, that girl knows how to cook. I'll tell you, we had more good food from her than you could ever imagine. And, and I was thinking, too, as I, as I watched the guys up there, and this, this is a thought I never had before, that really, I, with my bald head, I should be wearing one of these, you know? Don't you think? I mean, really. I, you know, that's a practical thing. You've got hair. You don't need it. But uh, somebody like me does need it. I think I should be doing that on a regular basis. But uh, anyway, um, the culture of this place is just absolutely over-the-top wonderful. It is just so good to feel what I have felt here in this great worship. Uh, I, I tell you, it, it's just been so exciting. And your, and your pastors have got great ability as you all know, I don't need to tell you this, great vision and, and a great desire to see the church be all that the church should be and could be and to maximize the church's potential. And for me to be able to come in alongside of that kind of leadership uh, is inspiring, to say the least. Now, whenever I try to commend them and tell them the great job they're doing, you know what they keep saying to me? Well, we've got great people. You know, I just keep hearing that. we got great people. Well, I think I've come to agree that they have got great people to work with because I've had the opportunity to uh, meet with a bunch of them. Um, one of the things that can happen when I'm speaking, uh, people can close their eyes, and, and sometimes, I, well, when I see them close their eyes, I think, well, thank you for praying for me like that. <laughs> But when they start to snore a little bit, <clears throat> it gets a little bit concerning. However, I understand it because I truly listened to myself one time on a CD, and I went to sleep, so I can understand other people doing the same thing. Well, it's, it's wonderful to uh, be a part of all this, and, uh, and today... Uh, this will be a little different, perhaps, than what you heard from me last time. I mean, different style of, of uh, what we're trying to do just because of the nature of why I am here. But uh, I want to, to uh, point out a verse of Scripture in Habakkuk, the second chapter, and the second verse, and it may not be this way in your version, but uh, this is the version that I love. The Lord answered me and said, Write the vision. And make it plain that he may run who reads it. And I'll tell you, when there is a plain, God-given vision, you know what it does? It makes you want to run with it and go for it and see that vision come to pass. Uh, someone has put it this way, more than any other factor, more than any other factor, a passion for a vision will determine the choices we make and how we spend our time. Now, now, I know that doesn't grab you, but you just think about that a little bit. 
more than any other factor, a passion for a vision will determine the choices you make and how you spend your time. And so it seems to me that having a passion for a vision is a pretty critical and important thing. And when you have a passion for a vision, it, it sets you on fire to want to see things happen that ought to happen. And that fire is what keeps you going. I, I hear pastors talking about burnout. Uh, I, I say, man, how can you burn out? You haven't even caught on fire yet, you know. And so uh, if we're going to see anything great done for God, it's going to be, it's going to mean we have to catch on fire. You know, someone who's got a passion for a vision, they will see things that other people don't see. They'll hear things that other people don't hear. They'll do things that other people don't do or won't do. They'll go places that other people find all kinds of reasons not to go because they've got a passion for a vision that is strong enough. And when we've got a passion for a vision, Someone else goes to workforce in a way, and it is our subconscious, because that passion for a vision stirs the subconscious, and the subconscious will be seeing things that we wouldn't ordinarily see, and, and, and being creative in ways that we wouldn't ordinarily be creative, to find answers that we wouldn't ordinarily be able to find. Now, just to illustrate that, so that you can really get that, uh, I used to travel from our city, Moncton, New Brunswick, to Fredericton, New Brunswick, a back way where you had to go through a lot of woods. In traveling that route, <clears throat> I would never see a deer from, from one year to the next because I am not a hunter. I couldn't stand to sit around waiting for a deer to come by. Just don't have the patience for that. But I never saw a deer on that road. Well, one day I took one of our pastors who is who is passionate about hunting. And we were talking all the way on that road. We were talking about, about church matters. That's where our focus was. But as we're traveling along, he would say, oh, see that deer over there. Oh, see that, see that deer over there. He was seeing deer everywhere where I had never seen a deer anywhere. It's interesting, isn't it? Because that was his passion, and so he saw what I never saw, because that certainly was not my passion. And so if we can have a passion for a vision for the right thing, we'll see opportunities that other people would not see. And we'll be willing to do things that other people are not willing to do. You know, when I first started the ministry, there was nothing written about how to grow the church and see the church go forward. I had a passion for it. I had a vision for it. I had a desire to see it. I just was so intent on wanting to see the church be all the church should be. I just felt like that the church of Jesus Christ ought to be the most dynamic, powerful, energized, exciting place growing place in any given community. Doesn't it seem reasonable that the church ought to be that way? You know, when we think of the power of the, of the resurrection, the power of the Word of God, the power of prayer, the power of the blood, there's just power, 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 power. And with all that power and with a passion for a vision, it just seems to me that the church really should be the most dynamic force on the face of the earth. And thank God for the dynamic sense that we feel here in this place. But here's an interesting thing. In the last several years, there have been enough written about church growth 
to fill this building a hundred times over. I mean, there's just no end to all the information about how to see the church go forward. And yet, if anything, in general, the church is declining rather than going forward. So what is that all about? I've come to the conclusion there needs to be a passion for a vision to set those plans on fire. And when there is that kind of spirit and that kind of faith and that kind of fire, then those plans can come alive. And I'm all for all the great plans that can ever be thought of because, I, again, I feel the most innovative place in the world needs to be the place of Jesus Christ. And so if there is a passion for a vision, uh, that will make all the difference in life. I've been saying, and maybe it's a stage in life, but I will be as young. <laughs> in my eyes and as young in other people's eyes as my passion is alive and my plans are fresh and challenging. So you all think I'm young this morning, I trust, as you look up here. A passion for a vision. And when there's a passion for a vision, a lot of things that become, that some people think are very important, that are really not important, become unimportant when there is the right kind of a passion uh, for a vision. Um, someone has put it this way. The power of vision is greater than the power of the, of the CDs, we could put it that way, deep inside the human personality, the power of memory of all the things of the past, and it subordinates it, submerges it until the whole personality is reorganized to accomplish that vision. And uh, so many times people are kept from ever reaching their potential. Churches sometimes can be kept from ever reaching their potential because of always thinking about the past and all the past things that have happened and carrying around the weight of past baggage and past burdens. And I am thankful to declare to you this morning, when there is a passion for a vision, people will not be in bondage to the past because we do not have to be a product of our past. Hallelujah. We can be a product of our choices. And when we have a passion for a vision, we will make the choices that will help us to go forward and maximize our individual potential, but then as a body of, of believers, maximize the church's potential because we're not going to be thwarted by the memories of the past. We're going to be directed by the choices that are motivated and set on fire because of a passion for a vision that is right God's vision, of course. So, as we think of all that, when there is a passion for a vision, smallness and pettiness evaporates. Huh? Those little things don't matter anymore. People become energized by something more important, by a purpose that makes small things seem very irrelevant. Petty things become unimportant. When people are impassioned about a purpose higher than themselves. I think I ate too much breakfast. Um, I know I ate too much breakfast. 
I, I love this little happening. We just had a speaker recently at our university who um, was in this church that was dying, or had been dying, and it, it had tremendous decline. It had been a fair-sized place. And, uh, and the people recognized if they were going to go forward, there had to be some mighty changes. And I'll tell you what. You know, we can have, in the church, we can have change without progress. But let me tell you, you can never have progress without change. We've got to connect with the culture. We've got to speak the language of the culture of today. And if we don't speak their language, they're not going to be around because they don't understand what we're doing. But if we can speak the language of today's culture, then there's no end to what can be accomplished. Well, anyway, they hadn't been speaking the language of the culture in this church, and it had declined, so it had just a lot of elderly people in it. And, of course, elderly people sometimes get confused, and they think, well, these young people aren't interested, and they don't want to be in the church today like they used to be. Well, the problem sometimes is the elderly people who are unwilling to change, and that's the reason the young people don't want to be in the church. Everybody, how do you like me now? <laughs> and so, uh, so anyway, there were these, uh, these ladies, a big, a big contingent of elderly ladies in this church. And they called them the Cotton Ball Club <laughs> because they would come in and occupy this long pew in the church. And there was one lady that sat in the middle and when the, before the service gets started, she'd pass out cotton balls to the ladies on either side of her because the music was so loud in that church that that's the only way they could tolerate. You know, in today's world, if you're going to reach the youth of today and the young, uh, the young families of today, the mu- it's just not having music that is contemporary. It's having music that hits you and you just... It's so loud, it causes your whole body to vibrate because it's so loud. Well, that's the kind of music they have. But these ladies, now this is what I love about it. They passed out the cotton balls, plugged their ears, and then they got into the music, and they were just going for it like crazy. And I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, it's not about them, right? They had a passion for a vision. They had a passion to see young families come to Christ. They had a passion to see youth come to Christ, children come to Christ, people bring them. And that church turned around and began to grow because they're willing to change. I say that's hallelujah shouting ground. And when there is a passion for a vision, that's what people are willing to do. They're willing to do what they wouldn't ordinarily do because the passion for the vision supersedes their own selfish desires. And let me say, I'm not, I preached a message here where Jesus said, he went a little further. Remember that? Anybody remember? You probably don't remember that message. Nobody remembers anything that we preach anymore. But anyway, um, and it says, he said, not my will. That is the true evidence of a real spirit-filled believer. Not what I want, Lord. Not what I like, necessarily. But what is best to see the church be all that the church should be. And that's when God's blessing can be expected and that's when God's blessing will happen, when people have that kind of an attitude. You know, one of the things that I wanted for my people, you know, the time goes by faster in this church than any church I ever preached in. <laughs> uh, but what I wanted for my people, two things. 
I wanted my people to be totally free, not to be carrying around baggage and bondage that would just drain the energy out of them, but to be totally free and preach messages that would help them to know how to be free. The second thing I wanted for my people, I want our people to be statesmen. Now, that probably has to be defined, and I didn't really understand. I don't know that I have the right definition. But my belief, my feeling about a statesman is that is a person who has a vision and a passion for that vision for the greater good, the greater good, regardless of how it may impact them personally. That's a true statesman. And that's what every Christian should be. Amen? We could, and I'm not, well, if you don't want to say amen, don't say amen, but uh, no, 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 no. I'm, I, listen, that was not nice. Uh, uh, and so you don't need to tell me that wasn't nice. I already know that. And my wife, if she were here, she would be telling me that for sure. But anyway, uh, amen. but really, amen. That's <laughs> good. Hallelujah. Very good, very good. We had a. Um, most of you probably wouldn't have heard of Winnipeg, Manitoba, but that's a province, and Winnipeg's a city, and it's on the Red River. The Red River flows out of the United States into Canada. It flows from south to north, which is the only place, the only river that does that, I think, and, and it floods. It floods Fargo, South North Dakota. It's done damage there, a lot of damage there, and it used to flood Winnipeg. Well, there was a premier back in the 50s who thought they should build, they should build a dike around the city, and it was very controversial that uh, they would go, because it's going to cost so much money to build that dike. We had a preacher in our church not too long ago who said, during, right during one of those flood times, if it weren't for Duff Roblin, the premier, and that's a, like a governor here, uh, he said, uh, right now, Eaton's building on the corner of Portage and Main Street, which is a several-story building, would be under 15 feet of water. But he said, because of that dike, the city is dry. Now, when Duff Roblin proposed that, there was all kinds of opposition. And people told him, you said, you could lose the election over going ahead with this project. But he had a vision for the greater good. And he went ahead with the project, and the dike was built, and he lost the election. But today, Duff Roblin, even though he's dead now, is respected and revered as one of the greatest premiers that province ever had because he had a vision for the greater good. Now, if a politician can have a vision for the greater good, <laughs> hallelujah, uh, Mr. Mayor, wherever you may be, <laughs> if a politician can have, a, a, I don't even see him around here, he probably ducked out, but uh, if a politician can have a vision for the greater good, don't you think God's people ought to have a vision for the greater good of seeing people one to Jesus and born into the family of God? It seems to me if any group of people needs to have that kind of a vision, then it is God's people. And I'll tell you what, when we have a passion for a vision, as individuals, things can change. The passion of a shared vision empowers people to transcend the petty negative interactions that consume so much time and effort and deplete quality of life because we got to we got to focus on something that is far more important, and we take our focus off of the things that are totally unimportant. And I would say this as it relates to individuals when we have a passion for a vision. Not only as we think of the church in general, we can, we can, we can come to this realization, I can change. I can live out of my vision 
instead of out of my memory. And that can make a difference in how we live. I can tie myself to my limitless potential instead of my limited past. Hallelujah. I don't have to be a product of my past. I can be a product of my choices. When I have a passion for a vision, that's pretty easy to have happen. Now, I'm here because we just want to see this church continue to go forward and do everything we can to complement what the, all that you are doing. And uh, the pastor mentioned about the, what happened over those years in our church. Early on, I was a little bit frustrated because our denomination, they thought that our main purpose was to, was to articulate our denominational distinctive. I couldn't feel good about that. couldn't feel right about that. And so I had to find myself in that whole thing. I was afraid I was going to be alienated by my peers if I went a different direction. But I felt I had to do it because for my conscience and for what I understood the scriptures to say. The other thing, some of our people didn't get a hold of it. I had a secretary who announced to me one day, I'm going to get married and I'm moving out of town down 15 miles away and I'll be going to the Baptist church there in, in that town. And, and, and now you just hang on until I finish this because you're going to think I'm awful at, at first, but then you'll feel all right about me after you listen a while, okay? But I'm thinking, how could you do that? I mean, here I am so fired up about this passion for this vision of what I believe God wants us to do. And you can just willy-nilly decide you're going to marry somebody and go to, to Hillsborough to live. I mean, what's going on here? Well, I realized, first of all, there's nothing wrong with her doing that. Secondly, that, but the thing that really got me was I have not, it's my, it's my problem, it's my responsibility that our people have not caught this vision the way I feel it. And so as a result of that, I spent a lot of time developing what is called the manifesto of our church. And I would just like to go through that a little bit and, uh, and share that. What? Surely I haven't been preaching that long. <laughs> you know, the thing about it, and of course some of you have ever done any public speaking, it's short for the person that's up here. It's long for the people who are down there. But anyway, let me, let me just uh, uh, try to share this as fast as I possibly can. Let, churches can easily be caught up in the political merry-go-round of organizational maintenance, which eventually occupies most of their energies. Isn't that the truth? Historically, churches in general have had a tendency to be preoccupied with the exaltation of their denominational and doctrinal identities. But no objective, however important, can ever be a substitute for God's purpose for his church. That's the thing that we have to focus on. To glorify God, to study the word, to know and contend for the fundamentals of the faith are certainly absolutely necessary objectives for our church, for our individual lives. But if Satan can get our eyes off of the real cause and the real purpose onto some very wholesome and important, worthwhile, but secondary pursuits, he will have subtly but effectively won a great battle, and he's doing it all the time. It is possible that more people will be in hell because the church has exercised its energies on secondary matters than because of the outside forces that war against the church. It's not the, what goes on the outside as much as it is sometimes what goes on the inside. 
Relatively speaking, evangelical Christianity, Atlantic Canada, has been in a standstill status quo position compared to what it could and should be accomplishing. God has called us to see this change. However, that can only come about by having the right goal. And that's a, what I want us to be sure to capture here this morning. Since a manifesto is a declaration of intention, purpose, and motive, may it be clearly understood that our goal, cause, and purpose, now listen to this, is to be in harmony with God's goal, cause, and purpose. Seems like you couldn't go wrong with that. And, and so what is that purpose? It is to seek and to save those who are lost. That is the focus that has to be predominant every time, all the time, everywhere, anywhere, and then we can just expect God to bless. So as a result of that, we developed what some people call a mission statement. When I wrote this, there, was, there were no mission statements and, and vision statements and all of that, so it's probably a combination of some of that. But here it is. We must use every possible method in every possible place at every possible time to reach every possible person for Christ. Everything we are and everything we do is for that purpose. That is what we're all about. Now, that came back to bite us over and over and over again because every once in a while we'd wake up say, oh, my goodness, here's something else we should be doing, could be doing, in order to use every possible method. Or, or here's another place that we could be doing that within our city. And, and so it just, kept, it just kept us on track. It kept us focused on making the main thing the main thing and not getting distracted, which there are all kinds of things that are gravitating to distract the church from what the main purpose of the church needs to be. The problem which exists is best illustrated by the fact that many evangelistic churches wholeheartedly agree with this emphasis, but their performance and preoccupation with secondary matters often reveals their lack of dedication to such a cause. We can never allow that to happen, can we? We can't allow ourselves to get distracted on secondary matters that keeps us from the primary matter. Uh, if any time leadership is made aware of any part of this church, this church function that conflicts with that purpose, that part will be deleted. You know, old traditional church, we had sacred cows. A lot of them had died and were smelly. We just had to bury them. But it was just an ongoing process to have to do away with some things that were no longer working. And you know, it's a lot easier to start a ministry than it is to quit a ministry sometimes that is no longer working. It's dead and dried up and blown away and has no more, has no effect. Our emphasis on discipleship, teaching, preaching, study of the word, prayer, holy living, doctrine, organization, buildings, tithing, music, praise, fellowship, are all that we might more effectively reach more people for Jesus. Everything that we do that helps us in our spiritual growth, in our spiritual development, is only that we can be in harmony with his purpose to see more people come to Christ. You know, people just want to grow fat and sit around and spiritually. But that's not the idea of being fed spiritually. It's to do something about what we have received and been fed. Nothing must ever divert us from this cause. No individual, no tradition, no denomination emphasis, no criticism, no obstacle of any kind. This cause was so important to God, it cost him the best he had. Whatever price is required to keep this cause before us must be paid. Are, any, are, are you able to pay attention when I'm reading something? 
Is everybody all right? Can you, can you hang with me in this? I, I, I know it's boring sometimes when people read something, but I can get through it a lot faster, if that's any encouragement, uh, uh, by reading it. Um, this is, this is, anyway, let me continue on. The church that truly has as God's goal, its goal is not merely paying lip service, which can easily be done, by the way, friends, because it sounds right, but it is totally sincere and has proved itself to be so by the direction and the decisions of its leadership, as well as an established pattern of results, deserves the unreserved, dedicated, committed, enthusiastic support of every Christian. And that's what we need in the church like never before. If Christianity is ever going to be turned around in this area, we must be an example. We may have our personal preferences about a big church or small church. Our church was large. I have people saying to me all the time now, I don't like a big church. Well, I would just say to them, I don't like a big church either. But what's that got to do with anything? What difference? It's not what I like. It's not whether it's big, small. It's whether it's reaching people for Christ. That's the important thing. And people are being transformed by the power of the gospel on a regular basis. And they're testifying to life change and transformation and passing from death unto life. That's the issue. Whether the church is large or small is absolutely a zero issue. It's whether it's alive, healthy, and growing. So now, how do you like me now? <laughs> Some of you, I can tell by the look on your face, you're just wondering. Uh, anyway, that's all right. I won't look at you anymore. Um, <clears throat> well, I'm going to skip that just because, just because you, you didn't like what I just said. So, uh. But the thing is, if we can, if we can get over what, what our preferences are to what his preference is for going forward and reaching the lost. We'll be blessed more by that than just getting the things that we like and the things we want. And that's what makes the difference in a great church and a church that is struggling. Because of the magnitude of our task, this church urgently, urgently needs workers, tithers, soul winners. We must, because of a crucial critical cause, because of the battles, we must be winning against Satan with ever-increasing momentum. God urgently needs an army in which there are no broken ranks, no defections, but to the contrary, a constant addition of solid, steadfast, dependable warriors. As a result, the church will have such a powerful impact in the community that the most disinterested person will not be able to ignore the testimony of the church. A most obvious and practical approach to seeing this goal realized is through a born-again, spirit-filled people committed to close walk with God by a consistent spiritual life through prayer, getting into the Word, total obedience, regular church attendance, availability, involvement, and dedicated service. Depending on the degree of commitment and cooperation, the church will be growing spiritually and numerically with hundreds of happy, enthusiastic, blessed people seeing the goal realized, the cause pursued, the purpose fulfilled to the extent that everybody in the greater Moncton area will not be able to ignore the message of the gospel. Now, when people are energized the way we have just described, do you know what they're going to do? Every chance they get, they're going to invite somebody to come to a place like this. It's going to be a regular way of life. It's going to be a part of the culture. Every day, anybody that you come across that you can convene, that, is, that you will not, uh, that, that will be appropriate, I should say, you can give them an invitation to this great place because there's thousands of people around here that need to be in a place like this. 
You know why this place is so great? Because this place is a place of love, acceptance, forgiveness, healing, encouragement. Who doesn't need that? And when they get that, it, what does it do? That atmosphere, that very atmosphere in itself causes them to want to do what? To get to know the Jesus that you got to know that made you that way. And so that's a wonderful way to see people. But people have got to get here. If people don't know about the place, we're winking in the dark. Did you ever see anybody wink in the dark? <laughs> and so if we're going to get the message out there, we have to say, well, I'd love to have you come. come. I've got to tell you. <sighs> Pastor, where are you? I'm circling the field looking for a place to land. It's as usual. It's foggy. Just ask, pray for the fog to clear, will you? And I'll be able to land here pretty quick. But anyway, we, I was, we have what we call Alpha in our church. It's a, it's a ministry uh, that helps people intellectually to understand why we have the Bible, why Jesus is the divine Son of God, and then it helps them to spiritually come to know Christ if they don't. And then be filled with the Holy Spirit and know everything that as Christians we need to do once we receive Christ as Savior. It's a great introductory thing for new people, but it's just as great for people who have been Christians for years. And so we've been doing that for probably 25 years, and we have people getting saved in Alpha all the time. Well, anyway, I was at an Alpha convention in Toronto, walked into the auditorium where I was supposed to go, and I met a guy who was all enthusiastic. I mean, it makes me look like I'm about three-quarters dead. He was so filled with enthusiasm and big smile on his face. And, and he said, you remember me? I said, of course I remember you. It was Ron Huntley. He said, I am now working in St. Benedict's Church in Halifax, Nova Scotia, which is a Roman Catholic church. And he said, I'm, we're, we got Alpha in our church. And by the way, Alpha makes the message of the gospel as clear as it's possible to make it. And he said... People are coming to Christ uh, all the time through Alpha in our church. Well, but he said, you know where I first heard about Alpha? And I said, no. He said, I first heard about Alpha in your church. And so he went on to explain that he came to our church. And I remember him sitting right down about the third row here and a big smile on his face when I'd be preaching, one of the best persons to preach to you could ever preach to. Then he'd go to the Catholic church after he'd been to our church or vice versa. And, and, uh, and he came on a regular basis until he moved away. And so, so he explained to me that he came to an Alpha conference that we had so that he learned what Alpha was all about, got involved in Alpha in the church, and then he started an Alpha in the, in the Catholic church, and then when he left, it kind of fizzled. But anyway, he, he was just so fired up, and he said, Father Mallon is here, and he said he never, never, had never heard tell of Alpha, until we introduced it, and now he's asked me to come on full time to, be, to give leadership to Alpha, and he said he's going to speak here. Well, I was introduced to Father Mal, and then I heard him speak, and he wasn't a, a Catholic priest from what I could tell. He didn't, have the, he didn't have the collar, and he preached like a Pentecostal preacher. He was so on fire, and I was just blown, slick and clean away. And so, so he said, Father Mallon is now on the international board of Alpha, which originated in England by through a guy by the name of Nicky Gumbel. And he said, Father Mallon has just gone to the Vatican, and, and uh, along with Nicky Gumbel, to talk to them over there about Alpha. And he said, uh, and now, he said, tomorrow night, he's leaving here and he's going to Brazil to speak to the bishops and the priests in Brazil about Alpha. And, and, and so, man, I just, 
and he said, but, but what Ron Huntley wanted me to know, he said, that's all because of what I heard and what I saw in your church. So I went back, all fired up, excited to think that this had happened, and I called our pastors together. We have about 10 pastors on staff into my office, and I told them this. One of the pastors spoke up and said, well, pastor, who invited Ron Huntley? I said, I, you know, I think he told me it was Julie. So Julie works in our school office, a wonderful, sweet girl. I said, girl, she's probably 50 years old, but anyway. And I, I, I ran down to the school office. I said, Julie, do you know who invited Ron Huntley to our church? She said, well, I did. Uh, and and uh, he lived next door and so on. I said, well, that's great. Come down to my office. Because she didn't have a clue what was going on. She was kind of a bashful type of a person. Walked into the office. Here are all these pastors sitting around. Didn't know what in the world it was all about. Just like a deer in the headlights, you know. Of course, I've never seen a deer in the headlights, as I told you. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> or a flashlight either. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, so... I said, guys, and I, was, I got real serious. I said, I want to tell you something. Because of Julie Greer, her one invitation, her one invitation to Ron Huntley, someday there's going to be millions and millions and millions and multiplied millions of Catholics who will be in heaven who would never have been there if Julie Greer had not given that one invitation to Ron Huntley. And the tears just flowed down Julie's face as she recognized, and we all recognized, the importance of an invitation. Eighty percent of the people come to a church because of an invitation. That's the reason they come, is because somebody invited them. So if we were inviting them on a regular basis, can you imagine? And that was a culture of, of the church, an ongoing inviting. Well, I just will close this thing. It doesn't mean a whole lot, but just to, to close my Bible like that, but it means something. <laughs> I know, I'm not stupid enough to not realize that when we try to do the right thing, we're going to run into opposition and rejection and all of that. That's just, that's the way it goes with anybody who tries to do anything. The people who succeed are the people who form the habit of doing the things that failures don't like to do. Truth is, they don't like to do them either, but they will do them because they know it's the right thing to do and it needs to be done. I love what old Nehemiah said when, when he, he saw the need. He said, what God put in my heart to do. And I think God has put it in every person's heart to want to see others come to Jesus. Let's do it. Let's do it. And then he saw the need, saw the broken down walls. And he got opposition every angle imaginable. He got opposition on the outside. He got opposition on the inside. People wanting to kill him every which way. But then, because of the call, the cause, the commitment, he said, we will arise. We will build. You know, I love to be inspired. Nobody wants inspiration any more than I do. My temperament just loves it and flies with it. But you know something? You can have the greatest inspiration there is to be had, and the minute you come up against rejection, inspiration goes right down the tubes. 
It's the worst possible fuel on which to run the spiritual motor. The best fuel on which to run the spiritual motor is the fuel that Nehemiah had, which was a fuel of commitment. We will do what we need to do because God has put it in our hearts to do it, whether we feel like doing it or not. Paul, when he was in jail, and those jails were not a sweet place to be, he said, and Paul, it was just a crazy thing when I see Paul. He would he'd go from one city to another and get half killed and then do the same crazy thing over again in the next city he went to. And then he said, while he's in jail, I press on. And I would just conclude this thing by saying, let's press on. Let's press on. Let's not be diverted from, by rejection. Let's not be diverted by opposition. Let's not be diverted by criticism. Let's press on. If we're hated, we'll press on. If we're hurting, we'll press on. If we're opposed, we'll press on. If we're rejected, we'll press on. Paul pressed on in all circumstances because he had a Christ that had changed his life and made it the important thing to do. A union general said to Lincoln way back, he sent him a telegram, and he said to Lincoln, I believe the war can be won if the matter is pressed. Lincoln responded, let the matter be pressed. I say, let the matter be pressed of the most important thing that is most important to God of anything that can ever be done to see people come to Jesus and get grounded in their faith. Let's press on.